last we've been making our way through the armor of God, talking about spiritual warfare. And this morning is part six in that study, I think. And we'll finish it up next week as we talk about prayer. That's the final offensive weapon for our spiritual armor to win the battle. But this morning we're looking at verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6, the second half of the verse. Last week we saw take the helmet of salvation, and this week we're looking at and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The, the word for sword there isn't really what you would think of as a big long sword, but it's the word that refers to a fighting knife that the Roman soldiers would use. They'd carry it with them. It was a small, multi-purpose knife. It could be used for digging. It could be used for cutting yourself loose from something, and it could be used for sticking it into someone if they got inside your defense. At some point, the armor, the shield, and things like that haven't really done the trick, and that last defense is that knife. I love knives. I, I, I collect them. I have quite a few, and, and uh, sometimes they come in handy. Uh, but I remember the first time I decided my boys... William and Danny were old enough for a knife. They both have birthdays in December, and so for their birthdays and Christmas, I, I think they were five and seven, and I got them these Swiss Army knives. It has all these different, I don't know what I thought they'd do with the corkscrew, but um, you know, all these different blades that would do different things. And I thought that was just the, I mean, I'm the coolest dad, and that's the greatest gift, and they lit up when they when they saw them, and then Anne lit up when she saw them. And we're standing there in our kitchen, I'll never forget it, and she was screaming at me, are you crazy? They're too young for a knife. What do you think you're doing? And I'm saying, I had a knife when I was their age. Every boy needs a knife, you know. Do you want them to grow up to be sissies? And we're, we're going back and forth, and then I saw out of the corner of my eye, William, with blood just pouring down his... <laughs> arm, and so Anne won that argument. I, I don't even know if he has a knife to this day. <laughs> but that's kind of, the soldier would have that knife. It was handy. It, would, it could do a lot of things. And now, in this case, it's that, that dagger that's the word of God. And the word for word there isn't logos that would refer to the totality of the word. It's a word rhema in the Greek that would refer to a specific word, an applied word. And, and so what he's referring to here is how the Spirit of God can take what we know of the word of God and specifically apply it to situations so that we are ready to go on the attack we are ready to be effective, that we take this thing and we can pull it out and open it up and boom, we have something that will allow us not just to defend ourselves, but to really move forward and to go on the offense, to win victories over the enemy in our lives. As the, as the enemy is attacking us with his lies, we don't sit back and wait for him to jump us, but we take this book, we take this word, and we take it out and we go on the offensive and we learn what it says and 
We hide it in our hearts. We memorize the word. And not only that, we're listening to the Holy Spirit as he allows us to see specifically what does his word have to do with our lives. We take it out and we use it. And it's, and it's powerful. It's alive and powerful. And as Paul told Timothy, sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and so he's referring to the fact that we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit teaching us we can use the Word of God in a powerful way. Now, a lot of people have the Word of God and misuse it, twist it, try to make it say what they want it to say. And you really can't understand the Bible unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. But the Holy Spirit will not reveal to you what you do not learn. He, he promises to bring to our remembrance the things that we need, but you can't remember something that you never knew. And so as Christians, it's so important, if we're going to win this battle, that we take the Word of God and we inculcate it, we make it a part of our very nature, and then as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, the Word can come in so handy, and it does so many times. Now, what I'm going to do really quick for you, for some of you it may just seem like nonsense, just, this is just silly, I'm not learning a thing. Think of it as a helpful reminder to you Bible scholars who know your word really well. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some examples of some scripture verses that I think every Christian ought to know. Verses that you might have learned in Sunday school when you were a kid. But we're just going to go take the next half hour or so and do Sunday school for adults. And I'm going to just take you to some key passages of Scripture. There are probably 12, 13, 14 of them that you definitely ought to have at least know where they are and have them underlined in your Bible. If not, have them just put inside your heart. A lot of them, you probably know them, but maybe you don't know where they are or you haven't thought about applying them in the way that we're talking about. But this is just a little quick crash course in programming your mind with the Word of God. Um, we do a pretty good job with kids doing that, especially back when I was a kid, there was a lot of that. I don't know if they still do sword drills, but those of you who grew up in church remember sword drills, and it comes from this verse, the idea of this being a sword or a dagger. And What you would do with sword drills, you'd hold your Bible up with your hands on it, and then the teacher would say a reference, and then go, and you would open your Bible, and whoever got to that verse first would stand up and, and read the verse. And it got complicated. Of course, kids are very competitive, and there were times when certain certain house rules for sword drills, because I was an expert at it, but certain house rules were if you have a thumb index on your Bible, then you can't use it. You have to trade it in and get a different Bible. And But it was the idea of, hey, this thing is useful, but you got to know what's in it and where it is in order to do it. I'm sure you have felt like I have sometimes where it's like, oh, what is that verse or where does it say it? So I'm going to take you through a crash Sunday school course, and I hope you don't think it's just too banal. And you know, if you, if you do, next week I'll try to give you something really deep and complex. But <laughs> for now, I just want to give you some, a Swiss Army knife of spiritual weapons that the Spirit can use, okay? First of all, John 1.1. 1, 1. 
John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 1. And this is really, it starts out in the beginning, because this is where it all starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you keep reading the passage, you'll see that the Word is a descriptive term he's using of Jesus, because he goes on to say the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and so on. But you don't know anything if you don't know Jesus is God, and you don't know how to defend that, because that's the thing. He was there from the beginning. In the same way that Genesis 1.1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 lets us know the God who created the heaven and the earth is the same Jesus that we worship and that we serve. Now, if you've ever used this verse with Jehovah's Witnesses who deny that Jesus is God, you know that they say, oh, well, in our version, the proper translation of it you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God with a small g. And if you, and there are some people who won't even use this verse with Jehovah's Witnesses anymore because they know they're going to pull out their version. It has God with a small g, and they explain to you that in the Greek, it may, and you're like, eh, well, but I love using this verse with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'll show you really quickly why. What they say, why it's a God, their explanation is that there's no definite article. The word theos, or God, would ordinarily have a definite article, what, like in English would be the, ahead of it. So it would always say ha, theos. Generally, that's the normal construction for when it's referring to God. Well, here in verse 1 of John 1, it doesn't have the article, or it's inarticular, as they say. And so they tell you, because it doesn't have the definite article, therefore, it's a God, it's not the God. Now, they can even, they'll pull out their little purple interlinear Greek New Testament, and they'll show you, see, there's, here's where it says, ha theos, ha theos, but here, it's just theos with no ha in front of it. You can look at that really interested, and then you can go, oh, I get it. So if there's no definite article, then it's God with a small g, right? If there is a definite article, it's God with a capital G. And they go, yes, and they'll start talking about Julius Manti and different things. And they're wrong there, but don't even go there. Just get their little Greek New Testament from them and go down to verse 18, where it says, no man has seen God at any time. Now tell them, Okay, verse 18 says no man has seen God at any time. Obviously, that's not no man has seen a God. That would have to be God with a big G, and your New Testament translates it God with a big G, right? And they go, yeah. And go, could you show me in your Greek Bible where the, where the definite article is with God in verse 18? And they'll look, and it's not there. In the same context, God with a capital G doesn't have a definite article. So circle... John 1, 1, if you circle things, and draw a line out to the side and write no article, and then draw a line down to verse 18 and circle God with a capital G. And you'll have everything that you need to know to bait a Jehovah's Witness into showing how, <laughs> how foolish he is and how he doesn't know what he pretends to know. But more importantly than that, it solidifies in our minds the Jesus that we're talking about is not just a good man. He is God. 
The Bible teaches, he goes on to say, nothing was made without him. Everything that's made was made by him. Jesus is God. Got to understand that it's what makes him different than everyone else. Now we'll go over a few pages to a verse that I'm sure most of you know, John 3.16. And if you haven't memorized it, that's one that you should too. Verse 16, John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel in one verse. And this is a verse that's really important for us to remember because we live in the world and we're constantly confronted by evil things. We're constantly surrounded by temptations. We're, we're always seeing around us lost people who are doing horrible things, and our tendency is to think this world is disgusting. If you know John 3.16, you look at that world out there, as disgusting as it might be, and you realize God loves that world so much that that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died, because God loves the world. And all someone has to do is believe in him. And they don't go to hell. They live forever, and they get to go to heaven. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And everyone ought to have John 3.16 in their little knife. Because when you talk to non-Christians, many of them, when they were kids, they went to a good news club or to Sunday school, and they heard John 3.16. They might have learned it for a piece of candy. And it's the message that we live to declare that God loves the world. And he gave his only begotten son. And belief in him delivers you from death to life. So get that in your, in your little knife. Carry it with you and keep it and have it ready to use. Now, there's a bunch of them in the Gospel of John, but we'll just do one more in John. John 14 and verse 6. And really, I could put John 14, verses 1 through 6. The whole passage is amazing. But John 6 is where we see the uniqueness of Jesus. He makes a wild declaration. Jesus said to him, I am the way. He's talking to Thomas, one of his disciples. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes this declaration, and it's a declaration that says, everyone else is wrong, and I am right. It's a declaration that tells us, all roads don't lead to heaven, and we don't all worship the same God, and we're not all religions trying to say the same basic thing. Every other religion can take that kind of a, of a rap and and teach it if they want. But if you're going to be a Christian, and you're going to believe what Jesus says, you have to believe that he is the only way. That's a wild declaration. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And as C.S. Lewis pointed out in Mere Christianity, he said, anyone who would make a claim like that, they could be crazy, I meet crazy people all the time who say they're God. So Jesus could possibly be a lunatic. C.S. Lewis would say he could also be a liar. You can say something like this. You can make this kind of a claim. 
Certainly other people have. But people who say that we all want to get along don't want to say that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic. They want to say he's a great teacher, he's a nice guy, he's a great example, he meant well. But the only possibility, as C.S. Lewis put it, he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Which is it? And I believe what he said was true. I cannot believe that the Jesus that so many people trusted and had their lives changed, the Jesus that people, people believed in him so much so that they laid their lives on the line, I think he was telling the truth. I believe him. And John 14, 6, very exclusive, very controversial, very politically incorrect, very intolerant, not open to diversity, a dogmatic statement that Jesus made, and either it's true and he's the only way, or he's a nut and you shouldn't pay any attention to anything that he says, or a con man. And so that verse is important. Now, if you read the whole context of the verse, it starts out by Jesus telling him not to worry. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas goes, I don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's why Jesus said, I'm the way. Know me, and your future is taken care of. But that is a promise of our eternity. That's a promise that Jesus is going to return. That he didn't just leave and not come back. He's going to return. So John 14 is something that it's important for you to have that blade on your knife, for sure, and to know that scripture. Now, let's skip over. We've said basically John 3.16 is kind of the gospel in a nutshell, but I think we need to be able to explain the gospel completely. We need to be able to explain to people, okay, my life is a mess. How do I get right with God? How can I know that I'm a believer? What does it take to become a Christian? If, if Jesus is the only way, how do you get there? Now, there are a lot of different approaches, organized and otherwise, to try to share with people the plan of salvation. But every Christian ought to know how to lead someone to Jesus, how to help them to become a Christian. You ought to have something in your sheath that will go, here's how it's done. Here's how you become a Christian. Now, some people use a method like um, the four spiritual laws that Campus Crusade puts out. It's, it's a very good one. It starts out with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Man is sinful and separated from God. Thus, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life and so on. I like what's called the Roman road because it all stays in Romans. It doesn't use verses from other places. And it's real easy to follow the path just using the book of Romans. So if you, if you aren't familiar with the Roman road, let me tell it to you real quickly. It gives the total package of how someone can be led to the Lord simply from the book of Romans. Now, if you haven't memorized these verses, then what you can do is underline and asterisk these four verses in Romans, and you can remember the chapters because... The first one's in chapter 3, and then you double it to chapter 6. So 3, 6, then you go back 1 to 5, and you double that, and it goes to 10. So 3 and 6, 5 and 10, those are the chapters in Romans. It starts out with Romans 3, 23. 
And Romans 3.23 lets us know what the problem is. And when you're talking to someone about what's wrong with this world, why are things so messed up, the first thing I'll pull out is the contention that Paul makes in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, everybody is stupid. Everyone messes up. Everyone is less than God. If we were all perfect, if we were all like God, the world would be a great place. But the truth is we're not. We've fallen short of the glory of God, and that's what the Bible calls sinning. So Romans 3.23 puts us all in the same boat. It's not saying you are a sinner. It's saying we all All of us have sinned, like Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It presents the problem. Now we go to Romans 6, 23. Easy to remember 3, 23 and 6, 23. But Romans 6, 23, the second step in it, says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first step on the Romans road is we've all sinned. And the second one is the wages of sin is death. And I explain this to people by saying, you know what our sin does? It ultimately is something that's causing us to kill each other and to kill ourselves. We want to do stupid things Stupid things destroy us. Payday for sin is ultimate death. But Romans 6.23 gives us a hint, hey, God has given us a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, a step further, but you back up and punt to chapter 5, Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the third step on the Roman road is, good news, man. God loves us, and he proved it by dying for us, by paying the penalty for our sins. While we were still sinners, we didn't earn anything. We didn't do anything to make him love us. Nothing lovable about us. He proved love by dying for us, paying the price for our sins. So, you know, if the wages of sin is death, well, God's love is the answer to that. And his death is the proof of that. And then all that's left is, what do you do? Romans 10, 9. Turn over to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. A very simple explanation of how to become a Christian. After you understand we've all sinned, after you've understand that sin is killing us, And after you see that Jesus loves us and died for us, verse 9, Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So with your mouth, you say, I want Jesus to be my Lord. Why? Because I believe the story of the resurrection. I I get it. He not only died, but he rose from the dead. Lots of people die. But he proved that he was God by then rising from the dead and saying, if you will let me be your savior, you're set. You're covered. 
Your sins will be forgiven. Your life will be eternally with me. Confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart. If you believe the resurrection, and it's ridiculous not to believe it, there's so much evidence for it, but the response to believing in the resurrection is to go, okay, I, I, I give up, you're my Lord. And if that's the case, as he says here, you know, you'll be saved, you'll be rescued. Verse 10 goes on to explain it. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So that's the Roman road. Romans 3.23, all of sin come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, wages of sin is death, gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, God showed his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Four verses that can save the world. Four verses that are a message by which we can do what we are called to do. And it's up to the Holy Spirit to give us opportunities to share that, but it's a very simple way to let people know the message that he left us with and said, stay here and spread this word. So make sure these blades are in your knife. Make sure you're packing this kind of heat. Now, while we're in Romans, we'll go to a Romans chapter 8, because this is another chapter that you definitely want to know. You definitely want to memorize some of this and make it a part of what's in your heart. Now, when I think of Romans 8, I first think of the bookends of the chapter. The first verse and then the last three verses. The first verse, this is this will defeat Satan so many times. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Life is full of condemnation. And a lot of people trying to condemn you and pretend like they're speaking for God, a lot of times Satan makes you feel condemned and he pretends like his voice is the voice of God. But Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You feel condemned, it's not coming from God. You have been set free. You have been forgiven. If the gospel's true, then this is true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Something you need to remember when you talk to people too. Make sure that what comes out of you doesn't sound like condemnation because there isn't condemnation. Back in John chapter 3, Jesus even said to Nicodemus, who wasn't a Christian yet, he said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. I came to save. And that's our task too. But remember this for yourself and for others. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now when you go to the end of chapter 8, there's also no separation from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And look at, beginning with verse 37, this is gold. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. Do you feel like it? Well, in this battle we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. No condemnation, no separation, nothing can stand between 
a loving God and you. He loves you. And nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing will ever stop that love. Nothing that happens, no event, no failure on your part is going to separate you from God. That's something you've got to know. You've got to understand it. Because Satan likes to come to us in this battle and make us feel like God isn't here. God's a long ways away. And I'll just go to the end of Romans 8 and go, really? Principalities? You think so? This is what his word says. And then while we're in Romans 8, the great insurance verse, Romans 8, 28, I think of this often. You know, look at, look at that verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Nothing bad has ever happened to you if you're a child of God. Only things that look bad until God turns it into lemonade, until God turns it into something good. Joseph said after his brothers sold him into slavery, he said, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What an amazing insurance policy that nothing bad can happen to us. If we lose something that we value, he will give us back something better. If someone intends to hurt us, to destroy us, to attack us, God's going to turn it on them. And God's going to rescue us and bless us as a result of whatever it is that we're going through. I don't know what trials you've been going through this week, but I want you to understand it is all good. There's that expression people use a lot. It's all good. Well, that's true if you're a child of God. Bad doesn't happen to God's children. Only good, because we have his word on it. And I want to carry Romans 8, 28. I want it in the back of my mind. I want it on the front of my mouth. I want to share it with everyone who comes to me, and they're devastated by bad things that have happened to them. And I go, it's not bad. I know it feels bad. I know it hurts. But God means it for good. And it's better than if it hadn't happened. God doesn't just salvage things. He doesn't just go, well, I think I can patch this baby up and you know, maybe help you to survive. God causes everything to work together for good. How good? God good. If he's doing it, it's, it's not going to just be okay. It's going to be great. God's doing great things in our lives, and that's a blade you need on your knife for sure. I'm running out of time. Um, but i got to give you a few others really quick, okay? Um, 1 John chapter 1. And I use this verse with people almost every day. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And check this out. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What sin? All sin. I have people coming to me because they feel like, oh, I've done something I feel horrible about and I need to confess it to somebody. I'm not a, I'm not a priest. We don't have a booth here you can kneel down and you can dump your heart on. The truth is, I really don't even want your dirt 
necessarily. And so if somebody comes to me, and, and I'm, but I'm totally sympathetic, and, and I'm not knocking it. The scripture does say, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. But when people come to me and they say, I've done something really awful, and I just need to tell somebody about it. And I'll say, okay, first, let's get this straight. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Have you done something that doesn't fall under that category of all? <laughs> have you done a sin that God's blood won't cleanse? Well, I, I might have done even the unpardonable sin. No, if you had done the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't be crying and upset about it. You'd be glad to be rid of God. You'd leave. You wouldn't want it. If you care, then the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all sin. Every sin, every possibility. Oh, how we're scared to even teach the truth. Because we think that when people think this, they go, wow, you mean I can go kill somebody and he's going to cleanse me from sin? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the truth. And if you're the type of person who thinks that's a license to go do something crazy, then I'm afraid maybe you don't know him. But whatever you've done, he cleanses it. And then two verses later, verse 9, a verse that goes with it perfectly. If we confess our sins, that means if we agree that what we've done is sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. If you have admitted that you're a sinner, that what you've done is wrong, you've admitted that to God, you're clean. You have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. And he doesn't just say, you know, God is just so generous and nice and warm and fuzzy that he'll look the other way. It's his faithfulness and his justice that John is appealing to, to say, no, if you've confessed your sins, he has made you clean of all unrighteousness. And if he hasn't done it, God is not faithful and he is not just. If if right now you're a child of God and you've confessed your sins, but you're really not forgiven, God is unfaithful and unjust. He's a liar. He's a con, and you shouldn't follow him. But I believe him. And so I have this dagger in my knife. I'm counting on it. I'm counting on that every time I have failed and I confess my sins in general, I agree, I am a failure. That his faithfulness and justice makes him, compels him to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I don't mean to be irreverent, but when I sin, and I'm his child, and I confess my sin, God doesn't have a choice. He doesn't hear my case. I don't have to tell him, well, God, here's what I was thinking, and here's what I meant, and here's what I was trying. Irrelevant. God, I confess, boom, you're forgiven. No discretion, no, well, I'll think about it. I'll go into chambers. Maybe we can plea bargain. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness based on his faithfulness and his justice. And I want to know that. And I don't want to forget that. 
A couple other things. First John 4, 4, you don't have to turn there. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I like to remind Satan every once in a while, and I guess you should turn there and underline it if you don't have it underlined in your Bible. First John 4, 4, Satan is not greater than the one who is in you. When you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came inside you. He is working, and Satan is not as strong as him. And once in a while, it's not bad to pull that blade out and remind the enemy of that, and remind yourself of it. And then if you really want to get him, once in a while, I'll just share this verse with Satan. I go, Satan, I got a little promise from my promise box for you. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Sit on that one, Satan. You're fooling people now, but you're going to be destroyed forever. That's a promise from God. Sometimes you might need that when you're being deceived, when you've been fooled, when you feel like, how could I have been so dumb? Okay, the one who deceives now is going to have his day, and it's going to be over for him. A couple other verses, Philippians chapter 4, and these really will be the last ones. Because <laughs> we're late, because we got started late. Philippians chapter 4, two verses. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't have limits. There aren't some things that I just can't do. I'm not going to listen to the voice that says, don't try that. You're not enough for it. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have absolute confidence, not in me, but in his ability to work through me. I know sometimes I tackle things that it's crazy for me to tackle it. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse should always be in the forefront of our minds as we look to the future, as we make our plans, as we have our dreams, as we, as we consider what God wants to do. Now, with that verse, you should also keep John 15, 5 in mind where Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So yeah, without him, nothing. With him, I can do nothing all things through Christ. He's enough. I can do this. And then verse 19 of chapter 4, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now in context, he's talking to people who had given to God's work. So if you're giving to God, then you can have this in your, in your blade that God promises. If you are giving then so is he. And his giving is according to his riches in glory. Oh, I, I'm thankful for that. I'm counting on it. I'm trusting in it. Now, all of these verses, you could pop out of your knife. You should know them. You should learn them. You know, it's not just for little kids to do this stuff, man. We, we have to fight the battle. And we need this weapon. And the Spirit can give these things to us. And so we go, hey, John 1, 1, Jesus is God. 
John 3.16, God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. John 14.6, he's the only way to get to God. The way, the truth, the life. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8, God showed his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God's raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of the chapter, no separation. Verse 28 of that chapter, the insurance verse that all things, God will, God will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God. 1 John 1.7, 1 John 1.9, the fact is his blood covers all sin. It's counting on his faithfulness, his justice. And, and going on over to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, knowing that Satan is not any kind of a match for the one who is in us. Going to Revelation 20 verse 10, Satan's going to be cast into the lake of fire forever. There will be no more deception at that point. Philippians chapter 4, hey, I can do all things, verse 13, through Christ who strengthens me. And finally, if I'm giving, he's giving. And he will supply all my needs. Everything I need is his. So now, there, there are your knives. Don't cut yourself. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have armed us with a dagger that's staggering in its potential and significance for us not just to defend ourselves, but to move aggressively forward in accomplishing what you've called us and caused us to be challenged with, to live this life victoriously, to win in this race. And so, God, we thank you. By your Spirit, would you please take your word and Help us to know how, where, and when to use it. Make us powerful wielders of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.